0: Welcome to the Duet Partner Podcast.
1: I'm not afraid to get right back on the horse and I'm going to put this in front of me and get myself out of my comfort zone and, and try. And I don't always succeed, you know, and at least the way I want to, and that's, and that's OK. And that's an important lesson, I think, for my students to see. That not have this thing like, I got to be just perfect like my teacher or I'm not going to be successful. There's, there's room for imperfection and beauty together, you know?
0: My name is Ariel Hobner. I'm a cellist and teacher, and I'm thrilled to be hosting this season on the Duet Partner podcast. At Duet Partner, we believe that music can change the world, and music teachers are the unsung heroes along this journey. We take care of the business of running your studio, so you have more energy to pour into nurturing your students and communities. This podcast is a place to give voice to those quiet heroes, so you can connect with, learn from and be inspired by them along your journey. We're so glad you're here. This season explores the ins and outs of building a thriving music studio with wisdom and advice from seasoned pros who generously share the lessons they've learned through years of mastering their craft. In this episode, I sit down with Anthony Arnone. Anthony has been the cello professor at the University of Iowa for 20 plus years. He is a long distance runner once performing the Dvorak Cello Concerto the same day he ran the Hawaii Marathon. He's an author, a devoted teacher, and a wonderful musician. I was so excited to sit down and chat with him about what inspires him to continue to grow and learn as a musician and teacher. I came away from our conversation with renewed commitment to my own growth, as well as a desire to inspire my students to reach for what inspires them and sparks their curiosity.
1: Yeah, let's see. So, I mean, you know, I was born and raised in Hawaii, um, which wasn't the best, uh, you know, environment for being inside practicing a lot. Um, I'm not complaining, but um, I started in seventh grade orchestra. I went to um, a pretty good private school where we all had the option of playing an instrument in seventh grade. And I came back from a family vacation couple weeks late from school I missed the first week of school and so I got there to orchestra and the teacher said you all the violins are taken you can play viola or cello and I looked around and I saw one of my buddies playing cello so I said all right I'll play cello Uh, and so there's no really good like I heard yo-yo ma play or anything like that I I really had no idea I just saw a friend sitting over there and thought that looked like a fun thing to do and um but it came pretty naturally to me. I remember the the conductor, the teacher saying, you know, asking, Oh, have you played before? It looks like you've played before. Mm-hmm. And um, I hadn't, but I think just the the position of sitting and using my hands in that way was something that that came, at least that part of it came easily to me.
0: When so, did you start taking lessons privately?
1: Um, so a couple of years later, the same teacher said, you know, you, you could probably do pretty well if you had a private teacher. And if I'm remembering, right, I was about sixteen, uh, when I started, you know, got got a, a private teacher to help things out, and that that certainly made me progress faster.
0: How did you get from private teacher at sixteen to then deciding that you wanted to study music? and um, you went to NEC, correct, for your undergraduate? Yeah,
1: well, I started um, school at the University of Washington as okay. a psych major. Um, and I knew that I was, I was enjoying cello, but I didn't, at least at that time, think I wanted to do it professionally. It was just a fun thing. And I got to the University of Washington and my teacher said, um, you should take a music theory class too. That would be really good. And I thought, yeah, I've always kind of wondered how, you know, chords work and things like that. So I, I took theory for, for majors. I was in the class with all the music majors and It was one of those things where I just, um, you know, the first year of college, I was just adjusting to life as a college student and um, not really focusing on anything except staying up late, (laughs) you know, living in the dorm and all that. But uh, I sort of gravitated into like, wow, this is, um, this is really fun. And my turning point was, let's see, it was the second, the real turning point was my second summer. So end of my second year of college. I went and worked up on a processing barge in Alaska, cleaning salmon, uh, which sounds strange, but it was, I could not bring my cello up there. I could bring one duffel bag of clothes. And, right. and we worked like, you know, 100 hours a week just cleaning salmon, it was really insane. And made good money, but it was, I kind of grew up a lot that summer. And also I came back thinking, wow, I really miss the cello. I wonder if I could do this and get paid for it, you know, if I could. Uh-huh. So I dove back into my, I remember my teacher, the same teacher saying like, wow, what happened to you? You're so much more musical now after, I think just kind of growing yeah. up and sharing a lot of ways, I was approaching music differently. And then I started practicing, you know, for real, <laughs> which I didn't really do the first couple of years. And um, that was the turning point for me. And then I, th- I think for various reasons, I wanted to get into a, an environment where I would be surrounded by a lot of really good players that would push me and inspire me and, and, um, that, that same teacher maybe didn't really believe in me and probably because she heard me not being very advanced or practicing very hard when I got there. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to look into other schools and that's, you know, I transferred the midway through the next year to go to New England Conservatory.
0: I didn't know this whole background story. Does that, do you feel like that affects how you approach the students that you accept?
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I, I've often thought about that because, um, you know, my teacher then was fairly quick to judge me and my potential. And I sort of proved her wrong in a way, And no fault to her. but So I'm always very cautious when I hear, you know, anyone, but I was going to say, you know, 18-year-old. 17-year-old and if they're not very advanced and if they just haven't had if they haven't had that training yet or, or have been working hard I, I still keep an open mind to what they can do.
0: Do you see it as so one of the things that I'm so excited to pick your brain about today is um, how you are always coming back to infuse your own playing and your own musical journey with inspiration and I think I feel when I'm engaging in those projects, it comes into my students, they can feel that energy of excitement. So do you feel like that piece was what was missing for you as you just hadn't had the inspiration at that point? Or uh, do you think it was something else? Or
1: I think I was a late bloomer emotionally. You know, I don't think it was necessarily something that was missing. I think growing up in a family of non-musicians, number one, yes, you know, so I didn't grow up like even having it really crossed my mind that I was going to be a cellist or I could be, I was sort of the stereotypical well-rounded kid in high school. You know, I did sports and photography. I had my own dark room. I did music. I played piano. You know, it's like, just did lots of things. And I, I think my parents were very happy about that. And and, I mean, my dad was not enthusiastic when I went into music, I think because he didn't really understand what could happen what you know and didn't seem like a viable job opportunity for me and I I get that but but back to your question I just I felt like it just took me a while to find something I was passionate about and nothing in particular really missing I mean certainly getting to NEC and being surrounded by lots of people that are are very into their instruments was helpful but I've often told people too my students in particular that I sort of passed up a lot of people at, at, at NEC in the in the sense that I think there were a lot of kids there that started when they were very young and maybe were pushed, maybe not, but they sort of had in their minds, like, this is what I'm supposed to do. And not they hadn't really figured out this is what I want to do. And I and I see that even here with some kids, like they and everyone goes through that process, right? Of like, if you you're good at something, you you get old enough to decide: is this really? Does this make me happy? Is this something I want to keep doing? And I kind of got that lit under me when I went to just before going to NEC, coming back from Alaska, and so I was really really motivated when I went to NEC. Mm-hmm. And I played for lots of different people, and I practiced a lot, and, I, and more than just the hours practicing, I really wanted to get better. And I was falling in love with music and pieces left and right. You know, just hearing. Brahms trio or something. Wow, this is great. And so I felt like that passion and a lot of hard work and a good teacher helped me sort of, um, catch up and, and I don't know, figuratively past some people, I suppose, but Mm -hmm. I always felt like I had to catch up when I got to NEC. I just felt like I was behind everyone. Everyone was better. So,
0: well, speaking of inspiring projects, you finished a huge undertaking today. Yes. um playing all six of <laughs> box solo cello suites in two separate concert series so i'm how do you feel now that you kind of completed the second concert how does it feel on the other side of that
1: it feels it feels good i i mean i learned a lot by doing it i should you know just back up and tell you what one of the motivating reasons for me doing this is that um i'm I'm playing Beethoven triple concerto in early May. It's less than a month. And when I knew I had that on my plate, especially after not really performing for the last couple of years because of COVID, just felt like, wow, that's going to freak me out (laughs) to Beethoven. (laughs) I need to give myself some, some what I would call stepping stone performances. Of course, (laughs) you know, some people were joking like, yeah, so you play all six box suites. That's, you know, (laughs) make it easy on yourself. But so that was and you'll appreciate this as a runner too so i, I you might have seen my my post but i sort of feel like i did two half marathons you know because i broke it and i didn't want to put anyone through all six in one setting especially me but no audience um so it was but it was plenty grueling enough i did almost everything by memory and um that was a good test i feel a little bit i don't know i'm my own worst critic i feel a little disappointed and in how I'm playing by memory, uh, I'm just not, you know, I'm not used to performing right now. And so I think I'm not as good at it as I might've been if I would just been continually performing. And I kind of knew that. Um, so luckily I'm old enough now where I, I just, I, I'm not gonna dwell on it or let it really get me down. It's like, okay, you know, um, I did some nice things and <laughs> there were a lot of little um, places I just kind of spaced out. and. <laughs> Like, oh, what is that part? You know, and l- luckily I'm pretty good at getting right back on.
0: Uh-huh. I-, I didn't have
1: any of those really paranoid moments of like,
0: oh, I
1: need to go get the music, excuse me. And, you know, that I, that's that's everyone's worst nightmare, right? But, um, but so with that said, I, you know, I did it. I did what I set out to do. And I feel like I'm going to be a stronger performer for the Beethoven. And I ha- had not performed a lot of these box suites in their entireties in front of people before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I'm familiar with all of them. And I've played the sixth suite a lot. But this was the first time, like I've even played the first suite from start to finish by memory in front of anyone. I've played mm-hmm. the preludes. You might have known I did all six preludes a, a whole bunch over the years. But so you know, that was really good for me too. So I just feel kind of like you said earlier, I, I, I still feel very proud that I give myself these things that are like, okay, I'm I'm not afraid to get right back on the horse and I'm gonna put this in front of me and get myself out of my comfort zone and and try. Mm-hmm. That's I think that's something I, I value in my in myself. Uh, and I don't always succeed, you know, and at least the way I want to and that's and that's okay. And that's an important lesson I think for my students to see. Mm-hmm. It's another thing I'm I'm sort of proud of that my students saw me have flub ups, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. plenty of them, <laughs> you know, I mean, but I'm playing also, you know, an hour and a half by memory uh, and it's tough music. So, but you know, I'm not that a nailer kind of it's like I'm just going to go and just like play everything perfectly. But I think that's important for them to see that like, that's okay, mm-hmm. you know, that not have this thing. Like I gotta be just perfect. Like my teacher, or I'm not going to be successful. There's, there's room for imperfection and beauty together you know
0: it's easy i feel as a teacher to get this extra added pressure of well my students are watching and like almost job security (laughs) if (laughs) i put myself out there so i think that's very courageous for you to model exactly what we tell our students over and over again that beauty and perfect imperfection can can coexist and in fact Mm -hmm. always do to some degree or another Mm What did you do to prepare? How far out in advance did you plan the concerts and what kinds of things did you do to kind of build stamina?
1: I mean, it was a real um, organizational challenge. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that's something I talk about with students too. Like you gotta sometimes even write down what (laughs) you want to get done this week or that day or, um, and I definitely just plotted out sort of within a day, like, okay, I'm going to, I need to practice the last movement of Beethoven on this passage, this passage, but I also need to work on, you know, the fourth suite, jig and the, the Bores or whatever, you know, things like that. And then as it got closer, starting to run the Bach pieces and then starting to run all three of them mm-hmm. on, on one sit down, you know, and I, as you know, never enough time to do all that stuff, but that was my, that was my attempt to do that.
0: Was it challenging to carve out? I mean, just that amount of time to sit down and play three suites in their entirety is a hefty chunk of time.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, my life is already challenging enough to find time to practice having kids (laughs) and being basically a single dad a lot of the time and with kids doing activities and everything. And so my my boys know the box suites really well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what a gift to give them.
1: <laughs> they do. I mean, my, my favorite story, which I, I almost told when I played this, but when Matisse was probably like five or six, he was playing with Legos on the living room floor in here. And he was singing he was just kind of singing the fugue of the fifth suite
0: (laughs) oh my gosh what a lucky guy
1: (laughs) yeah i know i tell i've told him i'm like you know you know these suites way better than most musicians do and he's gonna as an adult probably go hear a concert and just like flashback to wait why do i know this yeah and it's the same with rocco too i mean he he's got a great ear, he knows all of them by ear. So to answer your question though, yeah, it's I just try to grab my cello whenever I can. In fact, Rocco is very into swimming right now and would have Tuesday, Thursday night practice for an hour at the, at the field house. Uh, quite often in the last two months, I would bring my cello with me and go practice outside of the racquetball courts um, <laughs> while he swam. And there was one time this guy, they have some weight rooms right around the corner, and this guy came over and he's like, I just have to ask you, why, why are you practicing here? And I, and I said, well, I hope it's not bothering you. And he said, no, we love it. We turn off our music in the white room when you're playing, um, which was really nice. And I said, well, my son's got swimming and this is like an hour for me. I can practice, you know, so I, I did do that. So, yeah, I had to be a little bit creative sometimes, too.
0: You got to do what it takes. We know this from music school. I think yep. it can feel a little bit like. Well, now that you're a professional, it needs to look like this, like dedicated practice time. So it's refreshing to know you just take the time you have wherever and whatever that looks like serenade the weightlifters. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. True.
1: So they kind of got used to me because I did that really every week, probably for five weeks in a row. I was there playing, you know, playing through Bach pretty much <laughs> and, and some Beethoven excerpts too, but um yeah, it and was, it was very reverberant. It was a nice room, yeah. be, uh, you know, hallway to practice. And lots of people would be walking, like getting ready to work out and they'd like turn around and peek and then get their phone out and <laughs> film for 30 seconds or something. So I, I, was, bet they I, was, miss I you. sort of performing. You know? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. But, I love it. Yeah, another project that you have undertaken for, did you say 20 years you've done cello days? Yes. Tell me, tell me about how cello days came to be what it is
1: yeah yeah yeah. so when I got the job in Iowa which was very exciting but I got here and one of the thoughts I had for my students you know Iowa City is a great town but it's not Chicago or Cleveland or Boston or New York and there aren't necessarily a lot of great cellists coming through Iowa City you know habitually like there are in, in other cities and so I thought, wouldn't it be, you know, well, I thought part of my job should be to make sure that my students get to hear great cellists, you know, with very big reputations, it comes through and perform and teach that that should be part of their education. Like it was for me and you at school, right? I'm sure Cleveland, you must've heard great cellists all the time. And, you know, and I, and I got to do that in Boston. And so that's kind of what inspired me to, to start that. And of course, as a cellist, you know, we know that cello choir is a thing. It's not like violin choir or violon choir, <laughs> cello choir, right? So I kind of, I'm trying to remember why, where I, why I knew that, but I think I just had some experience beforehand, but thought, wouldn't it be great to have, you know, uh, well, yeah, I guess the other thing to add in is that when I moved here, I was so impressed by the two, there's two main high schools here um, and they had amazing string programs with tons of cellists you know, like just tons of them. And so I thought, wow, I was, you know, I I wasn't sure what Iowa City was going to be like when I moved here, but it's a very rich arts town and lots of cello teachers and cellists and community that supports classical music and everything. So I just thought, oh, this would be great to have an event. And of course, the school puts pressure on you. Oh, you should, you know, recruiting. And I thought, well, this would be a great recruiting event, too. And so that was the the start of that. And it just, what I found, I think I might've told you the other day when we chatted is it actually inspired me so much too. How amazing it's been to sit, like right where I'm sitting now in the kitchen with Bonnie Hampton, having a gin and tonic with her and having her be part of the inspiration for my book, you know, or to have Hans Jensen here and staying up till three in the morning with Robert Domain, who's the principal of LA now. They were here. Those guys were wild and crazy until, you know, I mean, just so there were cello memories, but there's also just people memories with all of these great names that came through here. And, you know, Paul Katz and Richard Aaron and the, the list goes on and on. And they all, you know, one of my adult students said at one point, you should write a book of all the cellists that have slept in your guest room. <laughs> Cause it's been, you know, or uh, Zul Bailey was here one year and, and I think someone was joking that I should get the, the hairs off of the pillow and sell them, you know, for... <laughs> but Zul might appreciate that. But I mean, but uh, anyway, that was, that's been part of the real inspiration for me is to get to know these people. Um, Joel Krosnick was here with uh, Natalie Haas and Alistair Frazier. And I got to play with Natalie Haas and Joel Krosnick in a cello trio together. You know, I mean, how cool is that? So that's totally selfish that I got to perform with those two. So that's, that's been really fun for me to do that. And I I guess another thing to mention is I I've learned that I really love organizing events. That's something I could see actually even later in life. If I leave this job and still being involved in the arts, but organizing chamber music festivals or what I've been dreaming of, you might ask me later, future projects, but having, sort of a retreat for, um, either chamber music groups or just cellists and bring, I could bring in a couple of really great cellists. Cause I know a lot of them and, you know, have them come for two weeks and have cellists that maybe are out of school, but still want that kind of inspiration and where they can have a quiet time to practice and eat together and get inspired and to do something like that. So anyway, I like to, I like the process of creating something that wasn't there and organizing it and see it happen. It's very rewarding for me to do that.
0: Is it when you first started, or does it ever feel scary to reach out and invite people or ask people to come?
1: Um, I've somehow, no. I mean, that's another people have asked me that, like you just called this person out for you know? And I think this may sound weird, but my dad was in television when I grew up. He, he worked for CBS and he knew a lot of celebrities people like Tom Selleck, who, you know, they film Magnum PI back then in Hawaii and uh, other things like that. And I guess somehow I was not starstruck. And even with cello, I mean, if I had to play for these people, I think I would have been nervous, mm. but just approaching them. I've always just sort of felt that if you approach someone with respect and, you know, good intentions and, and you don't come on too strong that hopefully they'll, they'll respond nicely. And so I don't think I had a lot of fear, but I do remember there was one moment when I was working on my book and I had my phone open. I was looking at the email list, you know, just and there were like all these and I and I kind of did a double take. I just never would have imagined I would have be emailing you know, so and so and so and so that did kind of blow me away. Um, and certainly the process of doing my book could probably help me be even more comfortable with with, you know, um, approaching people. Like Gary Hoffman and you know all of these big names, um, Tim Eddie and all these people, and getting to sit with them like we are, but I mean in person and sip tea with Tim Eddie or go fishing with Steve Doan and be on his boat and have him say you want to steer and you know put <laughs> together and grocery shopping, it just it made it a lot easier. It's just kind of a reminder that these people are just just people too, mm-hmm. and you know by and large they're very humble and. Easy to be around; they just happen to be really good at what they do. Yeah. yeah.
0: For uh, someone who wanted to, who was interested in creating, like you said, those events, creating something that wasn't there before, providing these opportunities, even if it's a smaller scale, where would you tell them to start?
1: I tell them, and this is actually something very literally. I tell them, I there, we have a class here that I teach half a semester of called advanced string methods and literature, but I don't teach anything like the class sounds like I teach them skills to be successful (laughs) um, as a string player, really. And one of the things I talk about is, is exactly that, uh, what you just asked me. And I I say, one of the first things is you got to make time in your life to think about what you want, because I think that's missing these days. I think too many people's default, like when you're not actually doing something is to pick up your phone and, you know, scroll and, and which isn't always a bad thing from, I mean, you can actually learn a lot too, getting ideas. I mean, that's the flip side of that coin, but, but like for me, and I tell them this, like when I go running a lot of times on the treadmill, especially, and I run a lot, as you know, sometimes I'll listen to a podcast or music, but a lot of times I don't. And that's a time to sort of just let things percolate in my brain, you know, and I might not even be sure exactly where I'm trying to think, but I can kind of lean on an idea or kind of I'm wanting to do something kind of like this and, and just think about things. Because I think that's really where it starts. Um, and then you can maybe get an idea of like, even if it's very vague, oh, I'd like to do something like this, you know? And then you can maybe start to piece it together. Um, and I also think having conversations with your, your friends, your peers, again, to brainstorm. And sometimes that happens naturally. If you're just hanging out with your friends, you might naturally get there. But, you know, if you're in your chamber group or I don't know, you're another teacher or something, you say, let's go get a coffee and just like, can we bounce things off each other about directions that we could possibly go? Mm-hmm. Because I don't think that's consciously done enough. Um, and that's helped me a lot. And also, you know, like I get Strings Magazine. And I, I was going to say, you know, I, ask, I tell them to read things that might give you ideas. You know, and there have been times either people or just events or I'll read an inspiring little article on someone and that'll make me think like, oh, I would love to do something, but maybe with this take on it, Mm. you know, something a little different, but I can get the germ of the idea from that article. So I think you have to look for inspiration even if it's kind of hiding. I mean, I'll tell you one more story. I guess this is my time to tell stories. But um, I was watching CBS Sunday Morning a couple of years ago, which is a show I enjoy watching. It's a Sunday morning sort of magazine show on the arts. And and they were doing a thing on Guam. And so Guam, it looked really pretty. And I thought, I want to go to Guam. So I just, I didn't let it rest there. I thought, well, I wonder if they have an orchestra there. So I looked online and they had an orchestra. Who's the conductor? Oh, let's See what I can learn about the conductor. Oh, he went to NEC when I was there. He's a clarinetist. Find him on Facebook. Write him a, a friendly, you know, email or yeah, email or whatever, saying I it would be a privilege if you ever had any interest in having me come and do anything there. It looks like a wonderful place, and you know, thanks for your consideration, uh, something like that. And basically, it actually almost materialized. It was really because of the problems with uh, Korea when Trump was president and how Guam was in, it was right around that time. I was actually scheduled to go do a concerto and some teaching there. And then it got postponed for a year. And then the conductor actually moved to Hong Kong, left that job. So, but really that's not the point. The point is, is that, you know, I I saw a place and I I like found a lateral, like it just was like, okay, how could I make this happen? And I, I hopefully did it with um, kindness. You know, I wasn't, I didn't want to be, like, I'm not good at tooting my own horn necessarily about how great I am, you should have me, but just saying, if this is of interest to you, it would be really wonderful and, and that's it. And so that's, sorry, that's maybe a longer answer than you wanted, but there's just some various things that I think can help get, especially musicians, maybe more string players out of sort of the channels that were often sort of pushed down. And I think that's happening more these days with different opportunities, but, but I do think One of our own jobs is to find our own opportunities. No one's going to really do that for you and to keep a creative open mind to what you want. And then how can you do that and ask other people and read things and yeah, flip through something on your phone to maybe get some ideas as well, but then write them down.
0: I'm excited to hear about your book. How did this idea come to be? Was it from your making space to think about what you want? Did it come to you when you were running? Tell me about The Art of Listening.
1: Yeah, it was a a combination of of things that sort of all came together. The the very first thing, this was probably before I even really knew this was going to be an idea, was reading a book about uh, conversations with conductors, I think it was called. But anyway, it was a book of interviewing like 12 or 15 very famous conductors, asking them all the same questions. And I love that idea about comparing how each one of them feels about going into a first rehearsal or um, stick technique or Beethoven's metronome markings or, you know, things like that. And I just thought, what a great idea. You can, you can really see how these people are similar or different. And then fast forward several years later, I think another one of the sparks was um, when I mentioned Bonnie Hampton when she was here for my cello days event. And we were, as I said, sitting right here, sipping a drink. And I was asking her about her life because I never really got to talk with her when I studied with her. You know, it's different when they're your teacher. You know, you're just sort of like bowing to them and, you know, you can't be friends with them. Um, But so I was asking her about her early life and she was talking about her lessons with Pablo Casals. And I very clearly remember wishing I was recording the conversation at that moment because I just was thinking, these are incredible stories, you know? And then somehow the thought process went to these stories are gonna die with these people when they die. You know, we're not gonna know what it was like to study with Gasolos. And so much is documented now on the internet, but there's a gap, I think, of what, you know, what it was like to study with Piatogorsky or Leonard Rose or gasals or or Greenhouse or all of these, these people. There's some, there's a little bit out there obviously, but to, in an organized way. Um, so that was, that's what kind of got things going in my brain. Of, and then I think it was things like um, when Starker passed away, again, reminding me like, wow, what a giant, he's gone now forever and Greenhouse passed away. And it again, hit home that like, man, in another you know, X number of years, all the people that are in my book are going to be gone. I mean, you and I are going to be gone in a matter of time. And so it, it, there was a sense of maybe more urgency then of like, I think this is a great idea, but I can't just sit on it and think, yeah, it would be cool to do this, you know? Um, And probably the last thing was then talking with my students about putting some of these names, either their teachers, the names I just mentioned, or just mentioning a name like Steve Doan or Paul Katz or Richard Aaron or Hans Jensen or any of these people, and most of them not knowing who these people were or are. You know, and but and then I was thinking, yeah, thinking, oh, they should know that. And I thought, well, they're not born. I wasn't born knowing who these people were. You have to learn about them. It's no fault of theirs. Oh, well, maybe I can help people learn about them, mm-hmm. you know, and that would be a great service. But I just thought, what a really nice way to have this time in cello history and these names that are at least very important to so many cellists in the, in the United States and in the UK. And um, So I finally... Um, I did what you've probably heard people say this, that I started talking about the idea like publicly, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, cause Oh, I'm, I'm telling people I'm going to do this. So I got to do it. And there was actually one conversation. I wish I could remember who it was exactly, but we have a quartet residency program here where these great quartets come through. And I was at a little um, post-concert cocktail thing. And I was talking with the cellist in one of these quartets talking about my idea. And he's like, that's a really great idea. I would for sure read that book if you did it. And I remember coming home that night going, okay, time to get off your butt and <laughs> I'm gonna do this. And, and then it helped that the first chunk of interviews I did was at the Piotr seminar in Los Angeles where I could do several of them. But that was really what gave me the step, that, that push to start to make it happen. And it was really scary. I think I've told you that it's not something I'd done anything like it before never interviewed people. I haven't written, but I've written a couple of articles and things, but, you know, it just seemed incredibly daunting, but really exciting. And something that I would be, actually, I am most proud of, of anything I've done as a cellist is is that book. But I got to do something that, you know, sort of like someone who composes a really nice piece that, wow, that's not going to go away. And Mm -hmm. um, it's just going to be there. And I, I just really hope, I always told people I hope you know the interviews were so inspiring for me to do that I could do some justice with them, and I feel like from the feedback that I, I got some good information, and it's it's going to be a useful thing. So that's been really, really pleasing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know when I sit down to read it, it's so easy to just read a little bit, and then I find that idea becomes my theme throughout the teaching week. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, you just need to hear the same things over and over again in a different way. So yep. yeah, I think it's an incredible gift. What do you feel like you've learned or your biggest takeaways after completing that project?
1: If I it, it'll take me a minute or two to explain what I'm what I how I want to say it, but take your time. What I've been, what I've been saying it, you know, I've been doing a lot of lectures um, about the process of writing this book. And what I learned was that I used the analogy of a, a double helix, like the DNA molecules, right, so we have the visual, you know, the two strands that wrap around each other. So I always ask people, like, do you remember that from school? And I said, yeah, I know what that is. And I said, imagine one of the strands is your, your physicality on the instrument, your technique, and the other strand is what you want to say, what your musicianship is, what you just, what you feel and what you need to communicate. And those two strands are so reliant on each other, right? That there's people that have a fantastic physical ability on the cello, but they maybe don't have a lot to say. So they're playing can only reach a certain level, especially if it's not a showpiece, you know, (laughs) if it's Bach Bach suite, you know, the D minor suite or something where you're not showing off, right? It's just what you really want to say. Um, and then there's other people that have so much to say, and you've probably heard people play like this, that you can just feel it coming out of them, even though there's all kinds of maybe roughness and edges in their playing. But in order to be maybe more of a complete player, you got to have those two things work together. And I've learned that as a teacher, I, I one of the first decisions I make, and it was actually fun, is, is which strand to focus on. And so I gave this lecture at University of Arizona, and then right after that, a girl played for me. And I said, so you heard my lecture, which strand do you think we need to work on for you? And she said, my musicality strand. And I said, yes, exactly right. And she was aware of that. But I think it's an important thing for a student to know if, if like, oh, I'm just you know, not sounding good on this Dvorak concerto. Well, is it because you're not sure what you want to say or is there something technically getting in your way? Mm-hmm. And to be able to identify very clearly. And it might be like, no, my, I'm not, finding an interesting sound here. Okay, good. You know that. Let's and then, you know, as a teacher, sometimes I'll, I'll approach it from either side, like let's just make different sounds and what can you find? Or no, your um your elbow staying up too high the whole time and you're not or you're not pronating enough or you know something like that. And I think everyone responds differently depending on which string you're pulling, right? And I think some of the teachers in the book tend to focus maybe more on one or the other. That that's their strength. But the really good teachers, I think, know how to deal with both mm. and know when to, you know, go to one or the other. But that's that's one of the most important things I learned. And I think if I can share one more thought, it's not related to the that analogy. But the other thing I really learned was this idea of curiosity. That was a unifying force from all these people. Not talent, but curiosity. I have emphasized that especially for for the students I've talked to, that you're going to probably get a job and you'll be excited about that. And then what? Then you're going to need something to keep you, as we've talked about, motivated, stimulated, excited. And so curiosity is so helpful. I I saw that and I heard that from all of these people um, that, you know, uh, let me think. Paul Katz said, yeah, I was not the most talented kid, but I was really curious about everything. That helped me a lot. And Bonnie Hampton's like that too. She's like, A zillion books lying around her place about all subjects. And she's still really, really avid reader and just curious about all kinds of things, even at age 82 or whatever she is now, you know? And so that was a point that I try to hit home with people I talk to and that I've learned about that. And I've realized how important that is. And the idea of challenging yourself kind of goes together with being curious, I think.
0: What have you found helps light that spark of curiosity. So if a student doesn't come to you very inquisitive, how can you invite them into that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question that's and that's something I talked a little bit about to the people in my book, but I really think this field is hard enough that you've got to find your motivation inside. And I mean with that said though, I always the, the plus side of my teaching maybe is that I try to gear what they're working on to things that they're going to enjoy playing. I think that's important. Um, I don't have like, no, you need to do this piece and then this piece, this piece. I said, well, what would make you really excited to practice? Mm-hmm. And if it's stuff that like, if I feel, it's like a meal and if there's something, if there's no vegetables in their meal, we got to get some <laughs> vegetables in there too. But but I really, I'm happy to do that. And And I think people can learn a lot from a lot of different pieces mm-hmm. and even technical things, you know, shifting or vibrato or, you know, bow speeds or all that you know it it can be applied to various kinds of pieces and i think if if a student can't find something they're excited to practice that's a bad sign (laughs) i think college is a chance to find out what you want to do Mm -hmm. and i think too often there's a pressure for string players anyway to enter as a freshman this is what i'm going to do and i just maybe because of my upbringing and my starting as a psych major i just think it's okay to be unsure about it and and learn while after your first year or second year or whatever that you're, that's actually not really what you want to do. You might even be really good at it, but it's not really what you want to do. So it's a tricky question. I I think what you asked about, you know, getting people to be passionate or motivated or find that. I, I don't know that I've found the right answer to that, but those are some thoughts on it.
0: Do you feel like that curiosity, like once it was lit, for you that it's just, you're always finding ways to feed it. Like it's just happens innately for you.
1: Yeah. I think, I think that, that I'm just thinking about my life. I think part one was when I was in school, there was the, like, can I be good enough to get a job?
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> so
1: that motivated me, but you know, like I said earlier, I was really excited about these pieces and music and cello and just like no one had to really motivate me. I just thought it was amazing. And then I think what changed was me getting my job and realizing I would go crazy if all I do is my job is all, I, you know, that I need, I need extra things and challenges and you know, something, or I, or I just wouldn't be a happy person. And, you know, not always necessarily in music, although that's the only thing I really know how to do professionally, but, but you know, doing this writing thing, and and I'm actually feel more gravity pulling me towards that. Um, but I could see myself, you know, going other directions. And back to your what your question was, I just feel like a little bit. Uh, I think this is symptomatic with orchestra players too. But being a university cello professor or being a cello orchestra member, there's not a lot of growth in your job in the sense that you work your way up the ladder, and now you're going to have different duties mm. and opportunities i mean basically i've been teaching the same pieces over and over and over again and so my challenge has been how can i be a better and better teacher um and that's been fun to a point but you know and you hear it from orchestra players too they're playing the same music and their voices don't even get to necessarily be heard if you're in a section mm-hmm. um and so i think that's that's a fault of both of those things and there needs to be more ways of of keeping people stimulated, faculty members, you know? And I haven't found that happening in my experience yet. So I've had to kind of manufacture that myself. Um, and I do feel, I guess I was gonna say earlier, in a way burned out of what's left for me. I, I don't, I've always been like that. I don't just wanna be doing teaching until I am really old. You know, I, I just need other challenges. You know? um, And I have other other thoughts, like I think I mentioned earlier about having a retreat or, you know, using my cello background, but in new ways that will be present new challenges to me. Mm. That's really, really important for me.
0: You've been at Iowa for 20 years. And how do you think differently now? So back to yourself when you first started working there in terms of meaning making and purpose. Uh, the series podcast series is about like what I wish I'd known when I first started teaching. So I'm curious, like your perspective now, as you look forward and also your perspective then. So kind of two questions, what would you tell your past self, I guess, just starting and what is your future self? What do you think has in store for you?
1: Yeah, I would tell my past self, don't worry nearly as much as, <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of funny thing of being a teacher for 20 years that. I remember what it was like to be a student and how you sort of put these faculty up on pedestals in a way, right? Because they're faculty and everything. But now that I'm on the other side, you don't. I mean, it's of course to respect them is one thing, but I I really realize fully now just how all of these very respected faculty are just basic people with their, you know, problems and their strengths and their. I don't know. Just the 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 silly things that. I think it's tough when you start a job like I did and you're on this tenure track, right? So it's a little bit like survivor in the sense like you just don't wanna piss anyone off and you go you gotta say yes to playing with the, with the voice teacher. And you do, I mean, it's just like, I gotta make sure everyone likes me because they're gonna vote. They're literally just like survivor in that sense. They, they sit in a room without you and they all say like, yeah, do we like this guy? Do we wanna keep him? And I have, I have a problem with that process sometimes too. in the way it can be very arbitrary. Um, really, if you just didn't mix well with someone or you turned something down and people can be annoyed with you or you wore, you wore a red shirt that wasn't buttoned all the way or you know I don't know this just it can be anything. So I would have told myself, just do your thing and sometimes getting the job is really more exciting than actually doing the job <laughs> I think as a student and as a, as someone who just starts at you the know, University of Iowa, like I did, there's this like, oh, I've made it. I'm happy. I'm successful. I have my job at a major university. But then you have to, like I said earlier, get that, like, is this really, am I happy doing this? And I think I put too much pressure on myself about keeping the job maybe rather than am I happy about it. Mm-hmm. And not to say I was unhappy, but I think I worried about that a lot. and. I do find maybe trying to answer the other part of your question, if I'm remembering it right, that I'm definitely feeling now I'm in my 50s that I feel my life going by quickly. It seems to speed up. And I I have a, I think about how little time really I have left. I mean, and who knows how much that'll be, but it's, you know, it makes me really appreciate time. and And so I'm really conscious of making sure that these years while i am mobile i can still run i can still play my cello that travel and do things i want to make sure i really take advantage of that and that's something i i'm certain i did not think about at all when i started working here and it's normal most you know 30 somethings don't you don't you're not at that point in your life you're you're looking forward and what you want to achieve and you don't think about that limited time that you have but i mean you know no one's guaranteed of A long life, and it's just something. Sometimes a hard thought, but I think it's really um, important for for me and for people to realize you gotta you gotta really don't just kind of wait for things to change. You know, life is not a dress rehearsal, right? Yeah. You know, that's been something that I I've, I've thought about a lot. I've really thought about you know moving on. I would like to be in a different place with a lot of different challenges. And again, it's not saying anything bad necessarily about my job here, but. The kind of person I am, which is, I think, what you're trying to get to know, is that I want to experience lots of things. And I felt a little bit in the last 20 years that, boy, if it wasn't for things like Cello Days and my book and other things, that I, I it would have been really, really a very narrow, narrow path that I would have been on. So I'm thankful for my ability to get myself to do those things and keep me, keep me growing. You know.
0: Do you have a sense for what it is that helps you approach? these things as growth and excitement rather than overwhelming or stressful or, because I feel like there's a way to do things that you've done from a sense of must accomplish, but you really do it from a place of growth and this is exciting. Um, How have you cultivated that ability to just get back up and keep going?
1: That's a good question. I mean, I've been through some things that comparatively seem much Harder, you know, going through a divorce with kids—that was that was a very painful time, and other things like that, losing people in my life or whatever. So I think the stress doesn't necessarily scare me. It's there. I, I, you know, I will not say, oh, I just don't get stressed about it. That's not true. A lot of people want to be happy, and that's their goal, happiness. But I think that's maybe misguided, and that all the emotions are great, you know, and you learn from them if you're open to that and lucky. And so to be able to embrace, I mean, even this, the really stressful days or moments. I, sometimes I pause for a second and think this is important to me. It's exciting. So I'm stressed, you know, but that's like, that's great. It's, you're not just sitting on the couch, you know, doing nothing, which just feels good. Like tonight, I, I came up from the recital. Okay. I'm just decompressing, but you know what I mean? That it's like those moments, most of your day you're doing like, you know, you're, putting gas in your car, you're going grocery shopping or you're folding laundry or you're brushing your teeth, very few moments are really meaningful to you, right? In, in a given 24 hour period. And I think that's how I try to look at, you know, something that's gonna be uncomfortable or stressful, that, yeah, this is one of those moments in the day that, okay, my heart's racing or I'm anxious, that's, that's okay. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a life moment. Um, and that kind of helps um, keep it in perspective, maybe, um, to embrace it. Uh, uh, and I, I told you earlier in another conversation, I just like to get out of my comfort zone. And even if it's painful or scary, but so I'll remind myself like, remember you like to get out of your comfort zone. <laughs> so this, is, this is doing it. Um, but I think, you know, it's the, the tipping point for me is growth is more important than not being stressed. Um, So when they battle head to head, you know, okay, I push through the stress because if I'm not growing, uh no, I mean I still, I still feel like I like a student in so many ways, uh, as a cellist and and teacher, it's one of those things that's very hard to, you know, judge exactly where you're at. And I I find faults in all my playing all the time. I, I still feel like I could do so many things better. And so this, I just, that comes back to your question on growth, that still, I have so much growth left in me. That I, that's why I wanna do it. If I mastered something, then I probably would lose that desire, but I, I feel like I have way more to do in a limited time.
0: So what's compelling about cello playing is the idea that you still have more growth. It's exciting yeah. because there's still growth rather than, ah, I can do everything, it's fine.
1: Yeah, that's certainly a component. I mean, to me, there's just the sheer beauty of the sound of the cello and some of the music combined with. I still feel like a student and I I, I want to figure things out still, still trying to figure out the nice spiccato stroke and, you know, or how to play when I'm a little nervous. <laughs> like a, you know, playing Beethoven triple with orchestra is like, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, I still have a lot of growth to do in this. That's okay. I, you know. That's an advantage of getting older, like I said, is I don't let it get me down. It's in the big scheme of things, it's not, it's not worth moping about, you know? I mean, I'll have a little cry after a rehearsal and then I move on. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's
1: okay, you know?
0: Yeah. fine. You've been so, so generous. I wanna be respectful of your time. Any final words that you would say to a young teacher? I love what you said about not worrying so much. Is there anything else you would say about this is what teaching the cello is about or being a musician that you just want to close off with?
1: Yeah, maybe just to keep keep learning from anyone you can, even when you're the teacher. I think that's sometimes some teachers lose sight of that. They think they have to get their method that's, you know, like works for them and everything. But I, the longer I've taught, the more I realize that the good teachers can hit something with all kinds of different in you know different perspectives, <clears throat> different ways, um, and that can be something very technical or can also be very emotional, too. And I know that's maybe obvious to a point that the way certain young kids might respond to certain things. But but the point is is that I've like I said with my book even at my age now, I learned so much. And that only makes me a better teacher, I think, to I feel like I'm just armed with a lot more, you know, ideas and perspectives on on different kinds of things. And, and that's just, it it liberates you as a teacher, I think, to feel like I don't have to just go down a certain path. I mean, for a while, when I did master classes early on, I sort of felt I was always a little nervous too, right, to do a class and felt like, well, I'll, maybe I'll talk about this or this, because that's what I'm, that's what I'm comfortable talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I feel like I'm at a point where I, I could go lots of different directions comfortably and to just try to pick a couple of them that seem like they might help this person the most. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's particularly useful, but that's, it's what came to mind.
0: I love it. Yeah. I love it. Um, can I send people um, to reach out to you directly for your book? Where can they find the art of listening?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a couple choices you might know of already, but I mean you can go to Amazon and get the hardcover is $109. So don't do that. But the soft, the paperback is I think $45. But <clears throat> what I've been doing, and I've probably sold about like three or four hundred of them, just the PDF that I've offered people at, like a musician discount for $10. And I've told people, if that's too much for them, just tell me, you know, I just want people to read it, to be able to learn something from it. But people, I've had many people go, no, that's not enough, let me give you more, but $10 would be fine. And if so, if anyone wants to email me, then I can can just email them a PDF really easily. If that's something, these days, it seems like a lot of people are happy to have a a book on their computer like that. Mm -hmm. But if people want to actually hold one, then I would just go to Amazon and and get the paperback version because it's just much cheaper.
0: Thank you so much for spending so much time and sharing so generously. I can't wait to have another conversation soon.
1: All right, well, it was a pleasure. This was great. I enjoyed our talk.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to this conversation today. Check out the show notes to find out how to get a copy of Anthony's book, Conversations with Cellists. It's such an invaluable resource to any musician's library. And please take a moment to share this with a friend and colleague and write us a quick review. That just helps us reach more like-minded musicians and teachers like yourself, who I know are working so hard to make your corner of the world a little bit more beautiful. To learn more about how Duet can be your digital partner in managing your music studio, visit duetpartner.com. And don't forget to rate this podcast on Apple and Spotify. We give monthly prizes to those who take the time to rate us on those platforms. Thanks.